Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, this week we get to hear from Joe Puerta, who was the bass player for Bruce Hornsby and The Range. Now, regular listeners know I love Bruce Hornsby. I am a huge fan of his. And I have always wanted to showcase The Range on this show. But as I've mentioned before, I've reached out to Bruce in the past, and it's never... I never hear back. I heard back once. His person told me that he doesn't like to talk about the past. That doesn't surprise me, frankly. I have a feeling that if I did get to talk to him, that it wouldn't probably be the kind of interview that I would want anyway. And so I started thinking, well, let's see if we can find somebody else from the range and hear the story through their eyes anyway. And that's what we did. So Joe, for his musical career goes back like 45 years. And most of that time was spent as the bass player in Ambrosia. Now, six months ago, we had Burley Drummond on here and we talked about Ambrosia. And so I feel like that story has already been told. So Joe and I spend most of our time focusing on the range, how that band came together, uh, what the dynamic within it was, what Bruce was like to work with, you know, the success, the pro- the progression of the sound. If you're a fan of that band, you know that, you know, it started out on the way it is album being more pop oriented but over the course of the next two scenes from the south side which included this song right here look out any window and then a night on the town the sound really opened up and became more uh improvisational and uh, more jazz like now i have a theory on that and we talk about that in here i think that when bruce started working with the grateful dead it really opened his mind in a way that he's never chosen to go back from. And that was to not cater to pop or radio or the mass market in any way. He's gonna do things his way. And thankfully for him, he had enough success, especially with that first album, that it created a a foundation for him that he could work off of and build a career on ever since. And he's really never looked back. But I love those albums. I like the things Bruce does now too, but I love those initial albums. And I really wanted to get somebody on here to talk about those with me. So thank you, Burley, first and foremost, for putting me in contact with Joe. And then thank you, Joe, for coming on here and letting me talk to you mostly about Bruce Hornsby and the Ranch. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. If you're a fan of that band, as I was, you should enjoy it. Um, I don't know that their story really gets told that much. I learned so much in our conversation here. Joe called me from his new home in L.A. Well, thanks a lot for doing this, Joe. Um, now, as I mentioned, Burley and I had have just recently discussed kind of the whole Ambrosia story. So I thought it would be really interesting if you and I could touch on your career and uh, primarily your time in Bruce Hornsby in the range. I didn't know okay. until t- I didn't know until talking to Burley that, and you know, I have all the Ambrosia albums, but I guess I have them digitally. And so I, you know, I've never read the the liner notes to see that Bruce had been a member there near the end of the of Ambrosia. So how did, uh, you know, did you guys become good friends? Did you see in him, a you know, a, a companion or a collaborator that you wanted to work with? What's the, how did this relationship blossom? Well, it goes back and, and I'm going to go back one step and say, he probably would never say he was officially a member of Ambrosia. Hmm. We invited him to become a touring musician with Ambrosia. And that was on the, about the time we were releasing the Rhode Island album, which mm-hmm. was our last album we made for Warner Brothers of new material. And we had met Bruce when we were touring 
with the Doobie Brothers, we were kind of like a, a team. We were their opening act, and they were the headliners. We were in big arenas all around the country. And Bruce had uh, been a big fan of, of Michael McDonald, especially. Mm-hmm. And so um, we were playing in Virginia, and Bruce, I think, just came to the hotel. He found out where the bands were staying, and he happened to catch Michael in the lobby or something like that and, and kind of hyped his self a little bit to have mm-hmm. I, I got the best band here in the Tidewater area. you got to come check us out after the show. We're playing tonight at this Steak and Ale or whatever it was, some, some mm-hmm. club that would have had live music. <clears throat> So the word went out that there was this really talented guy that was going to be playing after the show and everybody was going to go see this guy and his band. So uh, all the bands went out. Bruce uh, played with his brother at the time and his sister-in-law and John Molo, who became a drummer for Mm -hmm. the Rams. And uh, Steve Watson was his guitarist. And uh, anyway, it was was a really good band. But they were primarily focusing on, you know, cool covers they did a few originals as well they were doing like some steely band and some uh, i forget the whole set they did but everyone walked away fully impressed with bruce and bruce became somewhat of a a friend with michael and mike became sort of a mentor to him and michael who had grown up in st louis told bruce you know if you want to make it music biz you're gonna to have to come out to la hmm. you know being out here in virginia just you mm-hmm. know gonna be missed long ways away so, uh, Bruce, having made a connection with Michael, we were doing a series of shows in the Virginia area. He came to several of the shows and just kept, you know, strengthening his ties to Michael. And then, of course, came buddies with Ambrosia because we were on the same tour. Mm-hmm. And as it turned out, he decided to move out to Los Angeles. So they really, it was like the Beverly Hillbillies. They packed <laughs> up their bags and moved out to L.A. And when they got to L.A., uh, <clears throat> Uh, I was living actually with a good friend of mine, Bill Fordresser, who was our promotion man for when we were on 20th Century Records. Later became our manager. Hmm. We were sharing a house out there, and Molo and I think it was Steve, the guitar player, needed a place to crash. So they they lived on our living room floor for several weeks. I can't hmm. remember while they were trying to you know get some showcase things for record companies and yeah. different things going and. Uh, they uh, never quite hit, you know, uh, a jackpot there with getting signed as a band. Mm. Well, I think Bruce's brother and his sister-in-law decided to move back to Virginia after no success getting a deal. Okay. But uh, Molo, the drummer, and Steve, the guitarist, stayed on, and Bruce stayed on, and his brother, who was a lyricist, moved out to L.A., and Bruce and his brother got a a publishing deal. Nice. And in their publishing deal, they were getting their songs pitched to different artists, and one of their songs, I think, got hooked up with Huey Lewis. Yep, Jacob's Ladder. Yeah, well, Mm -hmm. before Jacob's Ladder, they had other songs. Oh, really? Okay. He he, he had a, Bruce had a whole catalog uh, much more pop-oriented tunes. You know, they weren't really in the style that he became known for. They, mm. they were more like kind of more traditional pop. They were going for trying to get covers with different artists. So I guess Huey heard one of them. And I don't know if he was really going to... Uh, I, I, he never did cover that particular song, but somehow he connected with Bruce. Mm. 
Hmm. And he became a champion of Bruce. And I remember before Bruce was signed, Huey would be on uh, the radio doing interviews and he would talk about Bruce, what a great artist this guy is and da 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 da. And lo and behold, you know, down the road, uh, Huey came after Bruce got signed. Huey produced uh, several of the songs on the first album mm. and and did record Jason's Ladder, which became a hit for Huey. Right. But it took a while for Bruce to get established, you know, in L.A. Mm. He became a sort of a, it became sort of a second tier, almost third tier session player. You know, there were all mm -hmm. these other guys that already had their connections. So Bruce was kicking around. He had a publishing deal he was living off of. But, you know, it wasn't getting rich. Yeah. And uh, when Ambrosia's career sort of came to a halt, when Dave left to go do a solo album, and we were kind of like, you know, had our hands tied. We couldn't really do anything for a while. I got a call to do, to, if I was available to do a tour with Sheena Easton. Yeah. You guys like, are on the, be a world. there's a strut video. That song strut is maybe my favorite Sheena Easton song. And I, I never noticed until getting ready to talk to you. There's you and Bruce in the video. I never picked up on that before. That's true. And uh, <laughs> that came about when, when, when we were actually both of us. Well, actually I got asked first to be in the backup band. And uh, they were looking for a keyboard player who could sing. She was actually starting an American band. She had always used an English band. Mm -hmm. And she was transitioning over to uh, an American band along with her primary members of her English band were coming over. But her, her rhythm section, bass, guitar, and drums uh, were going to be, and, and a keyboard player who could sing. She was looking for an American group. So we had four Americans in the group and three English people, I think. Okay. And um, one of the suggestions, I said, well, I know a guy who plays and sings. His name's Bruce Hornsby. So Bruce came in and, of course, passed the audition with Flying Colors. And yeah. He became the keyboard player, second keyboard player. We had two guys in the, in the band. Okay. And, and uh, we toured behind Sheena for, like, two of her world tours. That's amazing. And... In between, uh, Bruce had been playing around with a, with a fabulous bass player, Jimmy Haslip. If you're mm -hmm. familiar with Jimmy, he's with Yellow Jackets, you know, yeah, one of the top right. bass players in the country. He's amazing. But the Yellow Jackets were taken off, so Bruce said, "Hey, I'm playing around. Can, Joe, can you can you want to do some of these showcases with me with my music when we're in town?" I said, "Sure." So anyway, I, I started working with Bruce locally in between the Sheena stuff. Mm. 
just doing little clubs, you know, Madame Wong. Sure. Club lingerie, you know, wherever we could get a gig, you know, which wasn't, there weren't too many places to play original music back then. Right. Let me ask you about Sheena real and quick. Now, of, did you go, did you play on, uh, what's the name of that album? No, Something no, Heaven. No, we were, we were, you know, her, she had her group of people that produced her. They okay. had their own circle of musicians. They okay, so you're just, the, you guys are just <laughs> touring musicians with her. Go out on the road, not play on the albums. Right. Okay. Exactly. Okay, got it. So anyway, that that was uh, for uh, two, two different tours. We did, I guess it was 83 and 84 we did that. And then in 85, Bruce was, was pitching, you know, his music, trying to get a deal with the band. And then also he was, he kind of branched out and he thought, well, maybe Wyndham Hill would be interested in what I'm doing. Oh. Were, he, he was he was thinking of focusing a little bit more on some of his piano playing. Sure. Because when we were playing, when we were actually playing around in L.A. with Bruce, he didn't even play piano. He was playing guitar. Yeah, he was? <laughs> he was borrowing one of my old, I had this. No. Uh, Fender Telecaster. I didn't realize how much it was worth because I probably would have cried if I found out how much it was worth and got lost because we were playing all these little dive bars and stuff. Yeah. But he he, uh, he was playing some guitar and he was he was just trying stuff. You know, he, mm-hmm. he was just trying to figure out why he wasn't getting noticed. You know, he, yeah. You know, he obviously was a great talent, but nothing was working as far as him getting a deal. So he he pitched a uh, a tape, a demo tape he had done to Wyndham Hill. And Wyndham Hill loved it, and they wanted to sign him. Mm. And he kind of said, "Guys, you know, it looks like I'm going to do a solo thing for Wyndham Hill. The band thing just isn't working out." And then suddenly, which often happens in the record biz, once people heard he was going to be signed, people that were kind of interested became, "Well, we better either yeah. get in on this, or we're going to lose him to Wyndham." So there were, I think it was RCA, and I think it was Epic. Wow. got into a bidding war to try to sign him. What a different world up, this would be if he had gone with Wyndham Hill. We would never have well, yeah, the songs that we know, be, yeah. at least not those versions. We'd have him like George Winston. I love George Winston, by the way. We'd have him like George Winston plinking along on the piano, you know? It, it could have been that, but he was also doing stuff that was ended up on the first album, one of the songs being the way it is. So there, he oh. was doing a combination. Some things will never change 
But it was it would have been probably all of the band stuff that was on the first album, you know, probably would have been, you know, not yeah. on that record. Right. Stripped all the way down to just. Yeah. OK. Mm-hmm. Wow. What a different world. So anyway, that, that was a, kind of the background with, with Bruce. But he, like I said, I wouldn't call him ever officially a member of Ambrosia, although mm-hmm. he was rehearsing with us to go out on tour. And we were asked to do a video for at the time the new you know um, mm-hmm. thing with MTV <laughs> yeah. come out and we were trying to get a video out there so we made a video of our single which was How Can You Love Me See that? It's great. Bruce is the keyboard player in that video, so he he does have an official presence in yep. our in our career. In okay. Our, in our video. Okay. So when you guys are forming yourselves as a band, is it at all a democracy, or is it primarily we're here to support Bruce? Bruce is the one with the vision. He's the, he and John are the two John Hornsby, I should say, are the two writing the songs. We're here to sort of support him. Yeah, he, it was his. Uh, you know, for the, for the most part, you know, everything was, he had a very strong uh, vision of the styles that he wanted uh, to portray and mm-hmm. convey. And, and that was, our job was to fit in with, with, with his music, but everybody had their own little personality. So, and when, when a band has a personality, I think that has a certain appeal. Like yeah. I've listened recently to some of the live tapes and, there was just a lot of energy with that band. It was a very good live band. We had a lot of fun on on stage too. And Bruce has a kind of a a wry sense of humor on stage, mm-hmm. and he he, he he kind of has has fun. He, and, and you know he's a consummate musician. So yeah. anybody backing him is, is you know he's 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 leading the the charge for sure. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about recording that first album. It, um, I mean, I'm sure you didn't know that it would become the huge hit that it was, but when you're writing and when he's writing and you guys are recording these songs, are you thinking we're onto something? Or are you still thinking, 
you know, it's been a struggle for Bruce to get signed or end up anywhere. Who knows where this is going to go? Well, I, I do remember um, <laughs> we were we were making the first album, and at that time, Dave Mansfield was part of the range. Right. And Dave Mansfield is a terrific uh, multi-instrumentalist, and he played violin as well as great guitar, mandolin. And he was recording the album when we were at the studio. And, you know, we're starting to listen back as we get the tracks down and everything. And I remember Dave turning to me and going, you know, I think this album could go gold. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was his impression that it was really sounding good. Uh-huh. And uh, as a new band, we were, you know, we were thinking, you know, wow, maybe we'll hit gold with this one. And the way it is, the, the demo uh, uh, Bruce had done, I remember hearing it and telling Bruce, way before he was signed, I think, I said, I think this could be a hit. Mm. And it was out of the mold at the time, but it was just, it was just so powerful, you know, a track. I just said, you know, I think this could be a hit. So I I became the guy in the band who predicted the hits, you know, I was, I was, matter of fact, I was somewhat instrumental on the, the way there was kind of an interesting story of our first hit record, how it happened. The record company, after the first album was done, picked Every Little Kiss to be the lead single off the album. And every little kiss went out and we were touring around. We were playing small clubs and getting a few uh, opening act dates with other bands, but we were kind of rising on the charts. We were really starting up high in the sixties or seventies on the top 40 charts. Every little kiss was kind of gradually moving up. Meanwhile, in England, it was a little bit of a delayed release. Mm. It was about a month behind the American release. And our promo man for RCA went to meet with the head, a guy, uh, the head of uh, programming for the BBC station that played the pop hits. And the guy was in a meeting, so he ran late and he was going to pitch every little kiss as a single. Mm-hmm. And the guy said, Hey, I, I can't make it. Just leave the album and I'll get back to you. So he left the album that weekend. The guy listened to the record and he heard the way it is and flipped out. Mm. started playing the way it is which wasn't the single meant to be a single but he just picked it started playing it and it took off like a rocket in england went to number one in england Mm. and suddenly everyone in america said change gears yeah everybody 
the way it is. And then the way it is went to number one here in America. Hmm. And suddenly we were like, you know, on a, you know, had, had a new fuel for the fire sure. for our tour. We were starting That's to play places, headlining. And so after the way it is was starting to have its, you know, its run was ending, they were going to release every little kiss again. And I literally, I grabbed Bruce <laughs> by the collar and I said, Bruce, mandolin rain. Mm. You gotta have mandolin. Really? I said, <laughs> I, I said you can't. You gotta tell him you want mandolin rain. I had like, you know, uh-huh. fire, fire in your eyes. eyes. I, was, <laughs> I was telling him, man. He got so he went to the rep company and told him we want Mandolin Rain for the next single. And they listened. So they put out Mandolin Rain and that went to number three. So we had a number one, wow. number three going into the Grammy Awards. And uh, you know how usually when the Grammy Awards have um, artists perform, usually if they're in that category, they're going to be the winner. And they kind of, pick the people to perform that uh-huh. they think are going to win the award. Right. And we were up for best new artist. Simply Red performed on the show. <laughs> I remember this. <laughs> and and they announced didn't win, the best did new they? artist. <laughs> no, we, and when we were announced that we won, we about, we about jumped out of our seats. And yeah. they had a, a brief flash over to uh, Hutchins, is that his name? Uh, Mick Hucknell. Hucknell, whatever, yeah. Hucknell, yeah. And he had this look of of like of like shock. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, I didn't win, and we were all like, ah, jumping nice. out of our chairs. We were so excited. That's got to be so, crazy. I mean, um, you've been in the business for twenty years, and you're now winning a Best New Artist Grammy. Yeah, it was it was it was pretty wild. And Did you so now, it, let me you ask know, you about that? Did you get your own Grammy to take home? Do you have a Grammy like in your bathroom for a Best New Artist of nineteen eighty eight? Or did you, you know, I, or does I, that sit, is there only I, I one do, that sits I, I, at Bruce's house? No, it, it's right now it's at my, I have a recording studio I own and it's in Milwaukee actually, okay. where I lived for many years. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to bring it home here. I live in Los Angeles now. I just, we're just kind of moved back into a place and okay. getting it all uh, decorated. It's going to come home here. Good. Yeah, I do have okay. one. Yeah, that had and to be a kind trip. Of a, You've been around forever and <laughs> you're just now winning that award. <laughs> Oh, well, it's yeah, still Grammy, whatever so it takes, happy. of course, of course, you deserved it. Yeah. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. So were you involved at all with, uh, like, um, recruiting any people like George Marinelli, uh, comes along or are these friends of Bruce's? How do, um, 
you know, how's the band sort of start to formulate? It sounds like most of the people are already there, but I guess George is kind of the one guy where I'm wondering where he fit in. Well, the only person that was there was Molo, really. And uh, then I, I came okay. in, I came in next. And when I first joined up with Bruce, it was still a guy named Steve Watson, mm-hmm. who he had, who had also come out with, with Bruce from Virginia, was still the guitar player. And at some point he left and Bruce was looking for guitarists. And I think it might've been John Mola who recommended George Marinelli. Okay. And then because he wanted to include, uh, you know, some more of like the bluegrass instruments, he was looking for a multi-instrumentalist. And I guess Dave Mansfield somehow popped into the picture. I can't remember who, how he was recruited. Maybe someone suggested him to Bruce. He was known. He had played with a lot of people. He, he was even on a rolling thunder tour with Bob Dylan. He has some great stories about that, but he also was getting into film scoring Hmm. and he had, he had done the the score for the the movie uh, heaven's gate. Oh, wow. And he's got a scene in the movie heaven's gate where there's someone roller skating and playing violin. I remember that. That's Dave. Is it really? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, it's Dave Mansfield. Yeah, and and he uh, was uh, he was kind of like the go-to scorer for M- Michael Cimino. Yeah. And Michael Cimino was making while we're making our first album, Michael Cimino hired him to do another movie. I think it was called The Sicilian. Yeah. Okay. And it was kind of a mob movie. Yeah. It wasn't a big hit, but he had to make a decision whether once the album got released whether to go on tour or to continue as a film, you know, a great career as a film scorer is a hard thing to pass up. And he said, guys, I I can't do it. You know, I I gotta, I'm going to stay back and do the film scoring. And so we were looking to replace Dave. Bruce had gone to school with a great guitarist named Peter Harris. Hmm. And Peter uh, took the place of uh, Dave on the tour. So it became the band became myself with John, George, Peter, and then Bruce. Mm, got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you mm-hmm. about you personally. So you're, you know, you've, in talking with Burley, he was pretty clear about how, even though Ambrosia was a very successful band, you guys weren't exactly getting rich or anything like that. In fact, it was kind of a struggle. So, but you've, you know, you've been on the radio, you've had hits, you've toured the world behind this pretty successful band it comes to an end is it an adjustment for you and even i mean hope this isn't too personal is it an adjustment even for your ego to go from you know being the bass player in a very successful band to starting over from scratch as sheena easton's touring bass player and getting together with these with this group of guys where something may happen something may not is that you know when you're sitting in la and you've just the wave dies down of ambrosia are you feeling mm-hmm. at all like I got to find something? Are you are you excited about this new venture? How do you feel during those days? Well, I, I was definitely always uh, a believer in Bruce as a talent. You know, okay. I, I knew there was great potential there. You know, I you never know if it's going to happen or not. But as far as the career dying down with Ambrosia and, and and losing that, you know, where you're a member of the band rather than you're a sideman. That, that that's kind of a transition psychologically because I, I had never really been a sideman uh, for quite a long time. The first gig I ever had, Ambrosia had started 
but uh, an opportunity came along early in our career before we had a record deal or anything like that. Before another, where I got asked to play, it was actually, believe it or not, came through Billy Paul, the singer for mm. Mrs. Jones. Mm. Yeah, he he had seen me play at a party, and Dave had been asked to play in the Leonard Bernstein's Mass in L.A. Okay, they needed a multi. He was playing banjo, guitar, doing some vocals. He got picked to be in that. Uh, kind of band for this production of, of Leonard Bernstein's Mass. So he was going to be involved for several months with that. So the Ambrosia thing, whatever we were doing at the time, we were just playing clubs and stuff like that. Went to, uh, you know, was on hiatus until he, in that meantime, there had been a party uh, for the cast of the Bernstein Mass that, that the Ambrosia played at. And, and Billy Paul was there and he heard me play and he goes, hey, I, I just did a TV show with Shy Coltrane, hmm. who had a, had a big hit record called Thunder and Lightning in America. Hmm. And she was looking for a bass player who could sing. Uh, I'll give you her number. And so I auditioned for Shy, and she liked me. So I, I, I got this uh, first tour uh, with, with, with Shy Coltrane. Nice. And actually, that's the first time I ever played on a commercial album was a couple of tracks on her oh, wow. second album. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. And actually... I'll have to look yeah. that up. doing that in between you know the the, the uh, shy tours ambrosia would still get back together whenever we could and we were still trying to get a deal and and little by little through strange connections we finally ended up getting signed by 20th century records and and mm. uh, then things evolved from there okay so okay so back to this first album uh the way it is it's mm -hmm. taking everything by storm you've got to be riding mm -hmm. high how did you celebrate? I'm curious if there was now I didn't I don't believe you have a co-writing credit on any of those songs, but I would imagine, you know, your life is much richer than it used to be with this new found success. Was yeah, there a, oh, yeah, were I you able to making... Yeah, were you able to celebrate? Did you go buy a new car? Did you buy a new house? Did you go out to eat? <laughs> did you You know what I mean? What did you do? Uh, what I do I I think we just remodeled the place we, we were living in and Nothing fancy. Yeah, sure. We bought a, you know, a car and stuff okay. like that, you know, but Good nothing. You. You know, I think I'll, we just bought a, a brand new Jeep, which is, you know, our, yeah. our big celebration. Cool. You so know, you're riding around in your new was, Jeep and you're like, this is my Bruce Hornsby yeah. Jeep. I worked for this. That's why I ask. I think that's interesting. So, 
So, uh, uh, but uh, you know, I didn't buy a Maserati or anything. That's like that. okay. That's okay. We, we made we made uh, you know a, a, a good living, but it wasn't like you know again we're getting rich. And I always was somewhat conservative with realizing nothing lasts in this business. Mm-hmm. And if you think this is going to be like this forever, whatever we're making now, we've got to put some money away. So I, you know, I try to put some money away. So when things stop, which inevitably most careers have their ups and downs. And I've seen so many people that have overdone it when they were making money and end up bankrupt or, you know, and yeah. you know, having to lose their house. And there's, there's, you know, there's more than a few stories of that in the, in the uh, entertainment biz. And so I just, you know, try to, live within my means and you know didn't go too crazy yeah. still Good for kept you. the same okay. place but just just some remodeling you know mm-hmm. but okay. um okay. and and in the meantime uh you know uh our daughter was born you know had a right. only only have one child and you know start thinking well i got to put money away for college yeah. all that kind of stuff you have to do and, and uh and she did very well by the way she went Good. to stanford and she oh, was five, for five beta Phi Beta Kappa at Stanford. So that's yes. not bad. <laughs> that's great, man. Good for you. Congratulations. That's great. Yeah. She um, makes more than I do now. She, ah, she works at Google. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> Good for her. You raised her right. Um, okay. So I got to ask. Now, I uh, the way it is is one of my favorite albums of all time. One thing I've always found sort of interesting is that it feels a little bit like there's a drum track versus an actual drummer. And like I was listening to the way it is, the song, uh, just this morning mm-hmm. to get ready to talk to you. And I and I was starting to play the album back, but thinking about you on the bass and trying to like pick out mm-hmm. the bass, which I hadn't done before. The bass on mm-hmm. the way it is is actually really kind of bouncy and rubbery and squiggly. Is that you? Oh, or? That, well, that that no, that's that that is a synth bass. So that's okay. That's, that's what that's I wanted to know. The Bruce had created for the. Uh, uh, for the Wyndham Hill thing was he was doing, you know, his own bass stuff like that. Okay. So on a couple of his songs on that record, yeah, it is synth bass. And that was part of the sound that created this new thing. Yeah. And then some of the album is, yeah, is, is me. I think on okay. seven of the tunes I'm playing bass and on three of them is Bruce or something like that. Okay. But those were the hits, you know, so a lot yeah. of people that became a sound. Yeah. So anyway, okay. but that's uh, what I thought. Is there a moment? Fact, when we, oh, when go we ahead. did when we did, we were asked to do Saturday Night Live, and on that, because we were doing the way it is, uh, <clears throat> and at that time when we f- did the first tour, I was actually playing the way it is on the synthesizer he used mm. for the record. Mm. So it's me. If you if you go back and see the, I don't know if you could find it anywhere. I'll look for it. But it's me playing keyboards on Saturday Night Live, and I was terrified because that first <laughs> run, I'm not really a great keyboard player. I can yeah. play a little bit. Right. But that do 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 you do. You got to get it right in time. And, yeah. You know, like, okay. Like, oh, interesting. Like, and I and I and I and I nailed it on Saturday Night Live, which is you know good for you. No retake. So nope. like, that's what you wanted. <laughs> I was right like, so proud of myself. Good. Okay. So anyway, is there a moment on that album that you feel particularly proud of? Is there something a something you played or a contribution you made or? Um, it already sounds like you're Midas when it comes to picking the hits, but even on the album track, is there what on that album? If there is a moment that you are particularly pr- proud of? Well, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff. There's fun, fun tracks to do. Uh, wild Frontier was kind of was our mm-hmm. was our kind of a wilder rock song.
that has also kind of a fun bass lick. That's what it is. And and uh, those those licks are always. I think Bruce said. I think you're only you're the only guy that got it right. <laughs> but uh, the uh, uh, and uh, the other one that I really liked uh, and Huey Lewis produced that I, I I told Bruce. Now the fourth single off the album. We had three hits. You know, uh, every little kiss came out, and that became a hit as well. What didn't do as well as the first two. Right. But it was still a pretty big hit. Then then we were talking about, you know, do we release a fourth single? And I've never, I don't think anybody else in their right mind would have said this, but Bruce said, I think we've had enough. <laughs> I said, no, no, we got to release Down the Road tonight, Down yeah. the Road tonight. That was all about Down the Road tonight. That's fun. That's one of my favorite tunes to play to have played bass oh, on. It was good. really fun for okay, good. the and but a lot of stuff. Honestly, we just got better and better as we became a real yeah. touring band. And I think the album, as good as it is, you should hear the live tapes of that band. And okay. it was just so much energy. It was, it was just an awesome band. Live. That's great. How come there's <laughs> maybe two someday I'll send you? I would love to hear huh? those. I, I would love to hear that. How come there are two covers to that album? There's two, there's three covers. Oh, there is. Oh, great. <laughs> yes. Okay. I th- I think there's one cover is like uh, I think it's a diesel truck going across the bridge that's over the Tidewater area of Virginia. Oh, that's the one I have. There's seen. one cover that's Bruce Hornsby playing like an accordion. And he's kind of moving. It's kind of blurred, kind of like yeah. or, or smeared. Yeah. I don't know what you call it. And then there's another one that I think it's the band on the front of the cover. Yeah. I've seen those there's last two, pictures. but I've never seen the first one. Okay. I think, I believe there's three covers, which is <laughs> un- unusual. Wow. Okay. So they kept just tweaking it, you know, yeah. trying to find what they thought would be the most commercial. Okay. So, so then, uh, uh, so the second album, Scenes from the South Side. Yes. It sounds as if the mm-hmm. band, uh, it does seem like you're formulate, like you said, you're formulating into more of a band, something a little, maybe less processed slightly. Um, that's uh, not not so much actually. Oh, tell really? the truth. I think that was less less of a band in some ways. And, really? and uh, there's yeah yeah I think so. And there was a little bit of a uh, it, it, that was done. You know, a lot of that's decision of the of the producer, hmm. and that was Neil Dorsman. I think produced that record, and he was not that friendly. It, it's his way of of producing stuff was more uh, you know control and he wanted huh. you know it was the band wasn't happy with that one actually you know we had some success with it 
Yeah. But that one, and then the third album we did, Night on the Town, that's the one where the band said, hey, we really yeah. want to just be the, the reflect our live sound. And, yeah. and that was more, we just went in the studio as a band and cut everything live. And you can tell. That was the only album that was really like that. Okay. But again, okay. it wasn't, you know, it was still successful, but it wasn't as successful as the first album. Sure. And the second album had uh, successful, but not as successful. First album was the one that had the most success. Sure. Know, of, of course. All three that yeah. I was involved with. Right. I remember buying scenes from the South Side at the time when it came out. I think I was 15 years old or something like that. And um, mm -hmm. I liked it, but it was a it was a letdown compared to the first one. Over the years, I've mm -hmm. grown to really love it. And I've always liked Night on the Town. I like that album a lot. Um, was Scenes from the South Side, I mean, it did have two decent-sized hit on it, hits on it. Look Out a New Window, Valley Road. mentioned it being a little bit of a disappointment internally was there any feeling that it was a disappointment commercially were you noticing like oh we're not we're not improving on that first album we're kind of going backwards maybe a little bit but honestly okay. commercial success wasn't always the main focus i mean uh. it's, i think bruce wanted it of course everybody wanted it mm -hmm. but it still you know it was a platinum album i think it did yeah. pretty well sure and and uh you know, with, with, with the way Bruce writes and, and uh, it, having top 40 hits, which is usually the primary motor for generating sales of albums, wasn't always what he was hmm. striving for. You know, his, 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 his artistry is, I mean, he, he's much more about playing. Well, you can tell that you know, now. His, his, yeah. You know, and, and he's really focused more and more, less and less on trying to write a hit you yeah. know as the last several years he hasn't had anything got right. all, all that got on the record radio but his playing has gotten off the charts yeah it sure if has. anybody has not seen him if you really want to see bruce's immense talent you should see a solo show and mm -hmm. that's the one where you walk away and just go oh my god mm -hmm. guy's unbelievable and yeah. he just kept working at his art and just become you know so you know he he's just you know, you, you have to see it. I know yeah. I can describe it as you, just best for you to go see it in person yep. and then you'll walk away with an amazing, yeah, amazing yeah. experience. <laughs> I want to keep talking about a, um, Night on the Town, but let's let's dive into this for a second because I saw Bruce for the first and only time live um, probably mm -hmm. about five years ago. And um, mm -hmm. I, he was in Salt Lake City and I drove to Salt Lake City and went to the show with my brother and we're both huge fans. And yeah, he... The thing about Bruce that I feel like he does not care 
what you want to hear. It does not interest, seem to interest him at all that he reproduces the songs just the way you love them, the way you know them, so you can sing along. In fact, I've reached out to him to try and get him on the show, and uh, his people tell me he doesn't like to talk about the past, so he's not likely to come on. Mm-hmm. And I think about that a lot because mm-hmm. I think that sums him up as an artist too. He just doesn't care about recreating anything for your pleasure. He's going to go on his muse and do it the way he wants to do it. And he's an amazing enough artist that you're just blown away no matter what he's doing, you know? Did he always seem yeah, like no, that? He, he, yeah, he, he's, he's uh, like I said, when we first went out, we were trying to recreate the record a little bit more, you know, mm-hmm. true to the what the original sound was like. As we progressed, it became less and less. Ah, don't worry about it. Don't worry. Let's just jam. Let's just do this. And it got to a certain point uh, by the, towards the end of, of uh, the touring, you know, Bruce got asked to be, to play with the Grateful Dead. Mm-hmm. And there, there's a kind of an interesting story. So maybe I'll jump back a little bit, how that happened. We were playing, you know, our first uh, uh, touring, we were out and we were doing mainly the, our songs from the first album. But as we were getting more and more successful, instead of just doing an opening set, which we didn't need that much material, uh, we were doing headlining. So we needed more material. So Bruce suggested, Hey, let's do this Grateful Dead song. I've got an idea for an arrangement of it. It's called, I know you writer. Mm. I'm familiar. If you're familiar with that song, I don't know. We did a version. It's what we did a version of it. And it was really, really good. It became one of our, really popular tunes live and the deadheads somehow found out about it. And I guess they have sort of a network and they started, you know, putting it out there that, Hey, this band, Bruce Horns Marines is a great song, you know, grateful dead song. Mm-hmm. So the dead heard about it and we got asked to play to open for them, uh, some festivals and we did. And they were, you know, blown away by Bruce. And then, and about the same time, you know, it's kind of like the Spinal Tap drummer keeps dying. <laughs> well, the Grateful Dead, <laughs> their keyboard player they had dies. Oh, so no. here they are. They're, they're they're out without a keyboard player. And Bruce grew up. Actually, his brother was a huge Deadhead, mm-hmm. and he grew up listening to Grateful Dead. Oddly enough, mm-hmm. and uh, so he knew their catalog, and he's got an immense musical mind anyway so they asked him to play with them and he started touring with the dead hmm. so we were and where this is leading is about getting back to your thing about not caring about yeah <laughs> the you know doing anything like normally like mm-hmm. you know let's construct a, a strict set and we're doing this this and that it became very loose yeah so we were doing a tour with the grateful dead in europe hmm. where actually we weren't playing together but they only did a couple shows a week so Bruce would play like they'd start off in uh, Norway. Hmm. Then the next couple of days would be a day off. And we, the brains would play in uh, like Amsterdam, mm-hmm. but the whole crowd was kind of following the dead around Europe. So we played the show after they dead played in Oslo. We went to Amsterdam, played this club and it was all deadheads. Hmm. And Bruce just said, Hey, you know, let's not worry about a set list. We're just going to whatever. Yeah. Jam. It's yeah. going to be, you know, it was a de- uh, basically a grateful dead approach. Yeah. I wonder. And so we were just being, we were being goofballs 
And in the middle of this set, we started going into a jam. And at some point, I think I started singing Wooly Bully. <laughs> so we did, we, we did a little bit of Wooly Bully, you know. Yeah. We did a verse and a half, a verse and a chorus and two. Uh, you know, and then we broke back into the jam. We were doing whatever it was. Okay. And after the end of the show, this deadhead comes up to me. And he's very serious. He goes, that, that song you played tonight, uh, have you ever played it before? I was like, uh, what? Well, Wooly Bully. Uh -huh. I go, oh, and I'm trying not to laugh because you know, uh -huh. it was done as a joke. But I always learned, don't ever laugh at somebody because it's insulting if they really like right. it. So I didn't know what to do. I said, no, we, we never played that before. He goes, oh, it was really good. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know. <laughs> That's classic. So, so he loved it. You know, yeah. He just thought that was the greatest thing. And so I said, oh, okay, thank you. And so uh, we go back to the United States. And Bruce suddenly decides, you know what? We're not even going to have a set list anymore. Mm, I wonder. We're going to be whatever people want to hear, just like we're in a little club and people write it on a napkin. They're yeah. going to bring it up to the piano. Yep. And we're going to do whatever they ask. That's great. So we get to, we're first show back from Europe is in Miami, I think. And we're up the stage and we're getting ready. We're getting these requests. About the third song in, we get a request, Wooly Bully. <laughs> <laughs> That guy, he, tra he <laughs> travels the world to see Are you. you. <laughs> We're sticking to the law, the rule. The rule is we play what they ask. So, okay, we That's do great. some only bully. And I think, okay, oh, God. So we start doing this no set list thing for a while. We come in the next thing we're going to be doing out in L.A., you know, yeah. Universal Amphitheater, one of our first big headlining shows in L.A. And you can imagine mm -hmm. everybody in the world is there, the record company executives, the press, everybody. But he's still on his kick. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> what do we get? Like yeah. two songs in. Wooly Bully. Oh, no. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I'm the guy that has to sing it. And I got all my family there and friends. And family. Uh, I'm like, oh, Bruce. Please. After that, I said, Bruce, this has got to stop. It's terrible. <laughs> That's great. No. No way. So now, that was about the end of the. I want to ask you one thing about the dead. Uh, now, he, and I think it's Bruce Hornsby and The Range, appear on that dedicated that uh, grateful dead covers album you guys do a version of wharf rat are you on that do you know what i'm talking about uh, uh, well the one i was involved with was it was uh oh jack straw jack it that's was it jack straw yeah. Yeah. yes it was midnight oil that did wharf rat you guys did jack straw we can share
I forgot about that. Okay. Right. Yes. Okay. I wondered. So that's you guys. You you played on that as well. Yes. That's, okay. That's the live band. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then and mm -hmm. one other thing, uh, he is featured on that two rooms. It's a Bertie uh, Taupin Elton John tribute album mm -hmm. doing Madman Across the Water. Is that you as well? Are you playing on that? Yes. Jazz spin on that yeah yeah it's a great song uh okay so let's talk about night on the town just for a little bit now that one it, it sounds exactly like you described that the band is starting to open up as i mentioned earlier and just be a band across the river is such a good song and i think that was only the big hit off of that one Again, are you guys starting to feel like maybe this is coming to an end? Is Bruce getting restless that he doesn't want to, he'd rather go off and do something different and not chase the radio anymore? How did you feel as that album was coming together? Well, that album, again, it was, it was an attempt to focus more on the, on just the live feel of the band. And uh, yeah, that is me on bass on that one for sure. And that, okay. that was the kind of one where I, where I kind of helped, since it was almost a jam, the solo section, you know, we were playing it live in the studio and there's a moment where we're just blowing through the, the uh, changes of the, the solo. And at one point I just started to do like this 
it's like a triple of you thing mm. against the, the tempo. And, and uh, it was me who kind of sparked that, I felt. And then Bruce jumped in. Everybody just, but it was improvised. It okay. wasn't arranged that way. And I thought that was a cool thing. But that was a, a, a actually going back to when I was talking about the song, I Know Your Writer. Uh-huh. The solo section of I Know Your Writer was so powerful. When Bruce wrote the song uh, Across the River, we actually took that solo section mm. and spliced it into uh, Across the River because it's basically the same. If you listen to the live recording mm. of I Know Your Writer, it's the same solo uh, arrangement as, as uh, Across the River. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Um, and I know that Sean Colvin, Jerry Garcia, Wayne Shorter all appear on Night on the Town. This was before Sean Colvin even got big, I believe. Did you were you there when she did her um, backup vocals? It was Lost Soul, right? Uh, Sean Colvin's song. Yeah, she played on. She sang on Lost Soul. Yeah, that's right. There was a man of confused and sad nature. Not no one loved him. That was not true. Said he was a lost soul, didn't fit in anywhere. Didn't know where to turn or who to turn to. But as a lost soul coming down the road, somewhere between. I wasn't there when she recorded her vocals for that. Okay. I'm trying to remember if her album had already taken off. I think she already had her, her uh, a hit, you know, mm. so she was known. Okay. But uh, she was, um, interestingly enough, she was getting pitched to Bruce as an artist that he should produce. Oh. And I remember him playing the, uh, the demos, supposedly that were being sent out to him of her material for him to look at, to see if he'd be interested. And he said, you know, God, this sounds so good. I don't know what I do. That sounds mm -hmm. great to him, which was true. And the, I think it was, was it John Leventhal who produced that record? I and think it he did was a great yeah, job. I believe it was. Fat and, uh, city. I think is so what he, it's he, de he declined, he declined being her producer just because he thought the stuff he had heard coming to him was so good. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but it started a relationship that became very good uh, friends and, you know, art artistically good. what she was doing, he was just a huge fan of. Great. And so when Lost Soul came out, he, he, he thought it'd be nice to have a, a duet mm -hmm. and he asked her to do it. Good. And then of course she sang it. We did, you know, are you talking about the Nine Town, the live video we did or, or? No, I don't know if I've seen a video of it. I, I have the album. I've heard it a million times. So I know she just sounds great on there. Yeah, it, it, it was, uh, you know, she she's, you know, just a tremendous artist herself. Yeah, and Bruce was always one of her biggest fans. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then Jerry, Jerry Garcia is all over that album too. 
Um, or I think he is. <laughs> is that is hit? He's the one playing on Across the River, right? He, yeah, he did the solo. It sure sounds like it. Okay, yeah, it sure sounds. No, like that's that's definitely Jerry. on is it I think, barren I think ground? he played on yeah barren ground yeah yeah that's okay, okay. Album. So okay, so the band is you know band ends. Are you? How do you feel when it ends? Is it obvious for you know months in advance? Was it a surprise? Well, things were starting to you know change in the thing. Uh, I think part of the thing with Bruce was he 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 was getting more and more into the improvisational, you know, his jazz roots and his mm-hmm. uh, and and to tell you, I'm just not a jazz bass player yeah. my background has always been pop i dabble in it but that hasn't been my thing and i think he was looking honestly for uh more of a, a group that was steeped in the jazz world mm. a little bit you know okay. and so he he uh wanted to get rid of guitar entirely mm. wow uh, so okay. i did actually did a few i did a few shows with him after he did the uh Harbor Lights album. Yeah. It just had come out and he he said, Hey, I've got some bookings and I want you to play bass on this thing. We're just gonna be a trio. Oh. So it was keyboards, bass and drums. And then he had like a saxophone player and a trumpet player, I think. Huh. And nothing had been rehearsed. He just calls me and said, We're doing these shows. Yeah. <laughs> it was like huh. that was his approach. It was very okay. improvisational yeah. and kind of he looked at it like a jazz musician rather than a pop yeah. musician. Okay. That makes sense. And we did a couple of shows. They went, they went pretty well. Interesting enough. <laughs> I remember one of them was kind of interesting. Uh, we did a totally weird version of the way it is where we reversed the chords. <laughs> I don't know if your music, uh, knowledge, how much it is, but if you would take the, 
the, your, the harmonic minor of, of a chord, instead of playing the root chord, you changed it to the harmonic minor and reversed mm. the changes. <laughs> so it was kind of like, <laughs> wow. okay. I don't know why we just did it. I was going to say, I think I, I might've done that just for fun. And he jumps well, sure. in and he, he hears it right away. Stuff. Yeah. So okay. he loves wacky stuff. So right. like you said, he's not out there to recreate necessarily no. for the fans, the records. He just wants to play. And he's yeah. a, at heart, he's a jazz to do anything. And, and right now I think his focus has been much more, like I said, on his, 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 his keyboard, yeah. you know, virtuosity and, and, and his improvisational okay. stuff. Is and there, then he also has a great love for bluegrass. So yeah, I've noticed with too. Ricky Skaggs, a lot of that stuff too. Mm-hmm. Do you, uh, is there ever any talk of a reunion or anything like that? Do you ever pine away for that? Or are you sort of, I'll, you know, are you guys even still friends? I mean, do you keep in touch or anything like that? Yeah, we're, we're, we're it's not like we're close friends, we, you know, we, you know, but we're still on good terms. And there, there never was any super bad blood or anything like that. It's sort of, like I said, I kind of understood where he was coming from musically. And I understood at a certain point that's, if that's where you want to go musically, that's, that's not never been my, yeah. my main thing. My, my main thing has always been as a, I'm my, my value to a band is I'm a, I have good ears and I have, I can sing, I can play bass, but I'm not, I've never been a person who just focuses on the jazz side right. of music. It's I like it but it's not what I listen to all the time. I'm more right. of a pop musician. Yeah. That's been my focus. It'd be like, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's guys like Paul McCartney that couldn't do a jazz gig either. I'm sure. They, sure. But they're yeah. Great musicians. So I feel like, well, you know, yeah. it's, it's just a, what, what, what you're drawn to, you know, and nothing uh, wrong with that. Bruce right now, as you've, you've seen, you know, his, his, his live shows much mm-hmm. more towards his improvisations. Yeah. And, I can tell. And, uh, much more, the, the, the jazz thing okay but on the other hand we had a kind of that blend with the, with the range where we had some of that element but we still had the rock element that mm-hmm. was very strong and we had you know uh still a, a great amount of improvisation but it was a little more like like george marinelli is more of a roots guitar player mm-hmm. like his his style is not jazz either it's more really the guy that he really emulated a lot in his his playing and approach was keith richards oh, so it was a really kind of rock thing and his and always his solos were more m- melodic in the sense that he, he strove for melodies that you could remember mm. rather than how many notes can i lick you know get in this lick sure. in, in this one bar phrase if i can do 50 notes or can i do five you know he'll do five you know <laughs> like, right. he yeah. doesn't need to show everybody look what i can do he, right and he's goes i prefer for, that for tone yeah. Yeah, and, and and that that made that that's what contributed to the sound of the range. It was a little bit of a, a rock thing along with a little bit of this jazz, bluegrass and pop thing. It was it was a unique mm-hmm. blending, you know. Okay. So after and, the range comes to an end around 1990-91, um I I don't see much on your resume after that. I mean, I'm sure Ambrosia starts playing kind of reunion shows and According to Burley, you guys are like the happiest you've ever been because you get to go out now pretty regularly and there's an audience. I got to see you here in Greeley, Colorado, uh, three or four months, well, four or five months ago. It was okay. you and Orleans mm-hmm. and Al Stewart. Mm-hmm. And that was one of my mm-hmm. favorite. I loved that show. It was at this beautiful theater there in Greeley and it was such a fun show. Yeah, I so, remember that. I remember it well. Yeah. And so yeah, now that you. Was a fun time. We you just... have. Oh, go ahead. 
No, I just saw it was also uh, Pure Prairie League. Yeah, Pure uh, Prairie League. uh, We're good friends with Pure Prairie League. Actually, we just hung out with my girlfriend. I just went to hang out with those guys. They did a little run of shows, and we we kind of followed them around and and, uh, got to really see them from out front. Because one of the things that's not much fun anymore, if you're by the side of the stage, (laughs) you don't really get to hear the band Mm. until you're out front. Yeah. So this was my first time really seeing Pure Pearly got front. Awesome. They were great. They were just yeah. such a good band. Well, oh, actually, they didn't have the keyboard player on that show, did they? They have remember. a new keyboard player. Oh, that, it was the first time they were touring with them with the shows we saw here a few weeks ago in L.A. Uh, or Southern California. And he's terrific. A guy named Randy. He's Randy Jones, but he's out in Nashville. Okay. He's a great player. Good. Wonderful player. Okay. Yeah, that was such a fun show. See, I'd never seen any of you guys before, and so it was my first time, and I loved it. But between the end of the range and the beginning of this new lease on life, touring around with Ambrosia, what do you do in between to kind of pay the bills? Uh, well, that's where I said I had saved up money. <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> I, was, I, was living, I was living, I was I was kind of living on savings. I moved to Milwaukee and uh, was just transitioning as a human being into, uh, you know, uh, doing more. I, I did a lot of writing and home recording, and I started trying to become a producer a little bit mm-hmm. myself, you know, and I did a, a, my first production stuff I ever did. I did it out of my home studio primarily, and and uh, I produced a local artist that I still really proud of this record. No one ever heard it for, for that much, but mm-hmm. I did it myself. I recorded everything myself. I arranged it. You know, what's it's her a name she, was Les. Yeah. What is yeah, it? Les Loki. Les okay. Les Loki. Loki. Okay. L O K E Y. And okay. I don't know. You know that glow comes over a big city sky, kind of like a perpetual sunset. Last size I took a last drag off my very last cigarette Funny thing and what I like about it is you don't ever really know if that light is coming or going A man sure is a beautiful kind of in between burned up and shining See all them shades coming down like sleepy eyes all I see is wide open space and I'm peeking inside. Now some emptiness might mean vacancy, but all I ever get to see is possibilities. There's a, there's a song that's the title track of the album, if you could find it, called Burned Up and Shining. And, and you, there's two versions of it. There's one just turned on acoustic guitar, and there's one where I took the song and made it a, this big extravaganza mm. production that has Peter Weller, Whoa. Robocop, playing trumpet what? on it. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, so okay. it's kind of fun. Yeah, Good. it's one okay. of his few recording sessions he's ever done. So. Okay. Um, Nice. Yeah, okay. you could check that out. Try to find "Burned Up and Shining," and you'll hear I'll look for how it. I kind of uh, took it okay. from being a song into kind of this mystical yeah. journey. Is what I was shooting for. Okay. What what drew me to her as an artist is her lyrics are very unique and interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I don't know what she means always, but they're just imagery is great. Right. So check out. Okay, I'll look Burned for Burned Up it. and Shining. 
So were the, was if this? If you don't have it, maybe I could try to send it. <laughs> yeah, if you if I can't find it, um, yeah, maybe send me a file of it. I'd love it, and we'll play a little snippet right here. Um, were those lean okay. years? I mean, it sounds like it, it's probably. I mean, you've got a lot saved up. Were you? Did you ever have to take a job outside of music? I find stuff like that kind of interesting. Like, how do these artists that we no. all know and love have to pay their bills? No, I've never had a job in Good. my life, believe it or not, except for music, really, <laughs> other than maybe sweeping the floor for a couple of weekends right. or something like that. But, okay. you know, actual nine to five, I've never had to do a nine to five job. Okay. No, I had I had enough, uh, you know, in reserves. Like I said, I, I planned yeah. ahead Good. thinking, well, you can't count on this going on forever. And when it, yeah. when it ended, you know, I could end up surviving for several years without yeah. needing to do particularly anything except for start to transition into this. Like I said, I started getting into being writing at home, trying to figure out how to use, uh, you know, my own recording stuff to do stuff at home. And I, and I produced a few, um, artists and then it led to me eventually at one point, uh, you know, starting a studio, you know, and mm -hmm. that's where I am right now. I actually still have a studio in Milwaukee, Good. but okay. I've moved back to LA. Got it. Okay. Well, uh, Joe, thank you for talking to me. I, um, I've been a fan of your work, both Ambrosia and The Range, for since I was, you know, started paying attention to music. So thank you for all mm -hmm. the good you've put in the world, and thanks for talking to me. Oh, thank you. It was, it was nice to talk. Good. I'm glad. There you have it, Joe Puerta. I'm so glad he talked to me. I really wanted to get the story of the band out there, and I'm so grateful that he was he allowed me to kind of talk his ear off about that stuff. And I hope you guys remembered, if you had forgotten, what a great band Bruce Hornsby and the Range were. Um, I gotta say, I know I was dwelling it on it, dwelling on it in there, but I am so glad that he did not sign to Wyndham Hill. How different would things have turned out if he had? Now, I love a lot of, you guys know, I love George Winston. I like a lot of that music. But I am so glad that we have those radio hits to go back to all the time instead of you know, he's a singular artist. He would have made it work. I'm sure it would have been great stuff, but not the great stuff that we have today. And I'm so glad that we have those songs. If you guys had forgotten or don't focus on it enough, the three Bruce Hornsby and the Range albums are so great. I feel a little bad. I felt like the second one, Scenes from the South Side, got a short shrift on here. I didn't mean for it to. It came up, and then we sort of quickly moved on to the next album. I didn't mean for that to happen. It just did. But check them all out. They're worth your time. I want to close it out with one of my other favorite songs of theirs that you guys may not know. This is Stander on the Mountain, and it's off of the um, Night on the Town album. It's just, it's just epic, you know? It just feel, you feel it. It's got this sweepiness to it. I just love this kind of stuff. I'm a sucker for it. Now, this is the last time that we really touch on the 80s for a while. Uh, the next, like, month, month and a half is mostly spent... Next week is the 60s. In fact, the next two weeks, the artists that we talked to began in the 60s and had their height in the late 60s into the 70s. And then after that, you know, there's some 90s people after that. There's some other 70s. It's we're, We don't really touch on the 80s again for a while. So, and everyone that I can think of, the next, like, four or five guests are all American-based. So I hope that that's okay. I feel like we... We had such a great run of those British guests for the last month and a half or whatever it's been. I hope that all of you that found us because of those great guests will stick with us and listen to these guys too. We try to do here, what we try to do here is 
Whether you have a preference for a certain genre or decade, we try to tell interesting stories that, you know, irregardless of whether they fall under your comfort zone of what you like to listen to. I just hope that we find some good things on here and tell some good stories that you're going to enjoy no matter what. You guys should know how to find us by now. You can find us on Facebook and like the page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. And you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. And a huge thanks, as always, to my right-hand man, Jan the Man Markiewicz, for putting all of this together. And I don't think we have a bonus episode. I know we've been throwing a lot of content at you guys lately. I don't think we have a bonus episode for a few weeks now. And so um, I hope that's okay. Maybe you appreciate that. Maybe you don't. I don't know. I don't know what your preferences are. Let me know. But anyway, um, we will talk to you next Tuesday. Thanks, everybody. Standing on a 